Good morning. Before you get too comfortable, I want to ask you to stand again. Sorry to make you do that. But we want to just call on the Lord for a few minutes. Uh, we believe that the church is intended to be the, the house of God, the house of prayer. And so I just want to make this a house of prayer for a few minutes. And let's just call on God. And whatever is in your heart, whatever you need to kind of un, unload on God or just a burden maybe put before him or uh, some sin you need to kind of repent of or get right. Let's, let's just take a few moments and, and do that. You know, it's, it's weird that sometimes we, we come to church and we don't even talk to God. Even when we sing songs, our hearts can be far from God. Um, we're just kind of listening to the music or even lipping uh, the songs, but not really communing with God. Let's make sure we don't do that. We want to be the real thing, right? We want to be the, we want to be authentic people of God. So let's just bring ourselves as we are to the Lord. Father, we, we make no pretense, Lord. We just <clears throat> put ourselves before you, uh, all of us. Lord, all of our weakness, all of our darkness, all of our goodness, everything, Lord, you've done in us. Lord, it's all laid bare before you. And God, we just come to you now and we cry out and we ask that you would manifest your grace in this place. Lord, we pray that you would be present, that this would be about you. This is not about me. This is not about me performing or speaking or anything like that. Lord, I pray that you would hide me, uh, as is often said by preachers, hide me behind the cross. Lord, I pray that your words would be exalted today and that your glory would be lifted up. Lord, that we would think about Jesus right now, that we would think about your holiness, that we would uh, take our eyes and our minds off of earthly things and even off of ourselves and all of our own issues and needs and struggles and fears and just, Lord, that we would just look into eternity and that we would see you. God, we can't do that. Even as I pray it, Lord, we're so aware. I'm so aware that we can't do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. So we cry out right now for your spirit to be working in this place, in our hearts. Oh God, open up our eyes to see. Open up our spiritual eyes to see this morning what you would want us to see. Lord, make eternal things real. Lord, even as we, we talk about sin and wrath, is even as we think about you know, what's beyond the grave, what's in the future, beyond this world, your word says heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass, but there will be an eternal kingdom that will last forever. And we pray that we would see those things, Lord God. Sometimes these things that we read about in the, in the Bible, Lord, are they, they appear to us as fairy tales or they just don't seem real. Lord, we pray, God, that you would make them real. We pray that you would make eternal things real to us by the power of your spirit, not the power of eloquence or persuasive speech, but by the power of 
the Spirit. I acknowledge, Lord, that my words are limited. My words alone can do it. I, it's not you know, my ability to articulate uh, truths from the Bible, Lord. It's not enough for us to grasp these great, awesome truths, Lord. We pray for your Spirit to be at work in this place. Not just in this place, but also those who are listening, watching, at home, scattered around Rhode Island and wherever they may be on this planet, listening in this morning. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would extend to every single person listening. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for doing that. It's interesting preaching through a book of the Bible, especially the New Testament, epistles and different books, because you land upon, when you go verse by verse or couple verses at a time, a few verses at a time, you, you land upon subjects of great heaviness. And you, you can't just, uh, as, a, as a minister of the word, you, you can't just gloss over them. I mean, I, I, I'm human just like everyone else. Like, I, I like to think about happy things, nice things. I like to, you know, speak positive things. I don't like to think on heavy things. I want to sit around and muse on heaven. I love to think about Revelation 21 and 22, my favorites in the Bible. And I know that, you know, for you guys, uh, you want to hear good things, positive things, nice things. But it's interesting that the Word of God doesn't have all, all that. It's, it's balanced. You see the goodness of God throughout Scripture, but you also see the severity of God. You see His kindness and His mercy, but you also see great and terrible judgments uh, from Genesis floods to Revelation fire and everything in between you see God unleashing his wrath upon the human race and so again when you when you preach through the Bible you can't uh, gloss over these things. That's why I think it is important, uh, not that I always preach through books of the Bible, but as preachers, we're, we're just tempted to kind of skip over the heavier topics and just kind of, you know, camp out on our favorite Bible verses and, and Bible concepts. But we need, there's a time to think about difficult things, and that time is right now because we're going to be looking at uh, sin and wrath this morning. 
and how those two are connected. And my prayer is just that you could take it in. Kind of set aside your own, whatever's happening in your life, and, and just, just listen to what God is, is saying through these verses in Ephesians. So we're looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. But we're going to look at Ephesians 5, verses 5 to 9 today. Because I think they all kind of go together. And I'm going to read these verses first just to kind of get them in your, in your mind. And then we'll begin to break, break them down. goes like this, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time, You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Well, I want to take a moment to just comment on the the phrase, you may be sure of this. Because it's significant. Sometimes we overlook these little added phrases in Scripture. But he's essentially prefacing this awesome statement that he's about to make by saying, in essence, what I'm about to say is not a gray issue, but is something you can be absolutely certain of. I'll just say at the outset here, most people, including many who profess to be Christian, do not believe the words I just said. Speaking of the verses from Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 5 to 9, they do not believe these words. And apparently... The delusion was also a problem in the first century church. I want to make one uh, distinction just before moving forward between practicing sin and struggling with sin. Because even the strongest Christians struggle at times against sin. Christians do stumble on occasion. Good Christians. Practicing sin means it is a pattern of living. 
It is a continual part of lifestyle. Scriptures teach that if a believer sins, that the good news is we have an advocate, right? First John chapter 2, who will forgive us and cleanse us. First John chapter 1. That's the, that's the hope that we have as, as believers. That we, yeah, we do struggle, we fall short, we struggle against sin, but there is mercy and grace for those who walk in the light and those who are walking in repentance. But scripture also teaches, and that we can't forget about this. This is also from 1 John 3. I'm just going to read a few verses. 1 John 3, 7 to 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God, Jesus, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, God's word abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, there's a lot there that we could unpack, but we're going to get back to these verses in Ephesians. Paul seems to be in these verses emphasizing sexual sins. That's mainly what he's been talking about in previous verses and what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Filthy talk, impurity, uh, you know, let sexual immorality not even be named amongst you. Let there not even be a hint of immorality amongst you as the people of God. The Greek word used in this verse was a blanket term used to describe any kind of sexual misconduct, sex outside of marriage, child molestation, bestiality, homosexuality, orgies, and the whole other range of sexual perversions forbidden by Scripture. He's saying anyone who practices these things can say whatever empty words they want claiming to be Christian, but they aren't entering the kingdom. They can attend church, wear the Jesus hat, get the bumper sticker, memorize half of the Bible, but they are not entering heaven after they die. They can pray five hours a day, serve on the toughest mission field, but they will not enter the kingdom of God. Again, 1 John 3, no one born of God keeps on sinning. Now, there are other passages in the New Testament that are strikingly similar to this. I'll just give you one example. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says this. Again, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says the same phrase. Do not be deceived. And he gets specific. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Just take that in for a moment. And how this idea is a joke today to most people. The popular thought today is that people should do what feels normal, what's natural. As long as you feel it, it's right, then it's okay. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone, we are told. Most of the sins Paul lists in these verses are not even considered sins by most people. They are denied or downplayed or in some cases celebrated. It is felt that these things are their right. The idea that people will be held accountable to God on a day of judgment for these kinds of things they deem okay, is scoffed at. And of course, they consider themselves enlightened. They've done away with all these old-fashioned, unhealthy religious ideas of guilt and shame and judgment and sin and hell. We are told that we can live how we want to live. And we shouldn't apologize to anyone for it. You be you, we're told. And on top of the widespread disregard of any accountability for obeying God's laws, most people believe they will be in a better place after they die. Am I, am I right? I mean, surveys have been done. Most people feel like they're going to heaven, pretty good people. It's ironic that in America, most people even get their concept of heaven from the Bible, though they wouldn't give credit to that. But most are pretty confident that heaven awaits them after, after death. You know, their reasoning is that they deserve heaven because, after all, they're pretty good people. They don't claim to be perfect. I don't think anybody claims to be perfect, not at all, but they will be quick to show how, how their particular brand of morality makes them special and a little better than others. This is society that we live in. But back to the scriptures, the apostle, in sharp contrast to this popular mindset, is saying that those who live sinful lifestyles will not enter the kingdom of God. It's clear. And this gets a little confusing for, for some Christians because of what the Bible teaches, right, about love and mercy. They're taught by some pastors and authors that everyone sins and you'll never be perfect. Jesus died to cover all your sins. The message is essentially just, you know, just try your best. 
Uh, the most important thing is that you believe in Jesus and that you've accepted Jesus into your heart. We're told that sinners are saved by grace, which is true. But it's said in a way that makes people feel at ease practicing their sin or disregarding certain commands or even choosing to remain ignorant of God's commands. As Jude puts it, a little tiny epistle in the New Testament toward the end, he says they use the grace of God as a license to sin. You know, they practice sin, but just kind of hold up the grace card. Oh, I got grace. I got Jesus. I can do, I can do that. They might not say that, but that's how they live. In other words, they continue sinning in various ways without much worry because after all, we're all saved by grace and not by works. This has been called the error of easy believism. Somebody was telling me last night that they read the book this year, The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That would be a great book to read that kind of deals with this problem of easy believism. Cheap grace, I think it's called. But Paul is blowing this delusion of cheap grace out of the water in these verses. Obedience should accompany salvation. If it doesn't, then we aren't really saved. A real Christian will bear the fruit of obedience. Holiness is is not an optional thing. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Sanctification, if you want to get into some technical theological terms, listen, sanctification is part of a process that follows justification. So if sanctification this process of being made perfect by God's spirit isn't happening, then listen, justification has never happened. The two go together. You can't separate them. Oh, I've been justified, but I guess sanctification isn't really happening. It doesn't mean a Christian never sins again, but if they do, there will be grief, remorse, repentance, God's discipline. They will feel out of sorts completely. The whole life will feel dissonant. And many of you in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. As you've tried to go in the opposite direction and push away or dabble in sin, and you can't do it. You can, but you can't. You can, but not without misery. You can, but with no joy. You can do it, but the Holy Spirit is all over you. Making your life miserable. And secretly you think, why do those guys over there get to sin and, and, and they seem to be having a great time doing it. That's how you know the Spirit of God lives within you. You cannot sin. Thank you, Jesus. Let's look at this next sentence. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Here the apostle is giving us a very clear 
warning. You know, do not be bamboozled, hoodwinked, bewitched, he uses that word in Galatians. Don't be gullible just because, listen, the person speaking things is highly educated, eloquent, or respected. Be discerning. Test everything you hear. Jesus warned, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves, bringing out the deceptiveness. To the Corinthians, Paul said this, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, right, we're going back to the Garden of Eden here, by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 11. You should be very familiar with that chapter in this day and age. It is possible to be deceived by the clever, cunning, empty words of people who tell us that the sins defined in the Bible are not really sins or that we shouldn't worry about all that because everybody makes mistakes. We find this very deception in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, this is how far back this particular deception goes. God told Adam and Eve with clarity not to eat the fruit from a particular tree or they would die. Very clear and very simple. But the serpent, Satan, in disguise, comes along and says, did God really say that in that way? He planted a seed of doubt, right? That loosened Eve up a bit to do what her sinful heart wanted to do. So suddenly she was struggling with, what do they call it, selective memory. Yeah, what? maybe, maybe God didn't say that. What, what, what did God actually? Maybe, maybe I got it wrong. Then Satan plainly contradicted the Lord, comes in for the kill by saying, surely you will not die. A direct contradiction of God's commands. God said, if you eat of the tree, you will die. Satan comes along and says, you can eat of the tree and you will not die. This, Eve bought the lie because it was what she wanted to believe in order to act on her sinful desires. Well, Paul describes the deception that happens as empty words. They are empty because they are devoid of truth. They are empty because they are godless words with no grounding in reality. They are not rooted in scripture. They are, in fact, listen, the mere opinions of men. Little clay creatures, you know, brought from the dust and to dust they will return. The opinions of little clay creatures animated, who are they? We're going to listen to men rather than God? 
But if these empty words are so baseless, then why are so many deceived by them, right? It's a good question. Well, because the empty words are, are spoken by someone they, they admire. Maybe, maybe somebody in their family that they really respect. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody in Hollywood that they think is just something or some artist or musician or some politician that they think is so wonderful. And the opinions come from, from people that they, they, they just look up to. The empty words are spoken by someone who is highly educated and perhaps globally recognized for their intellectual achievements. The empty words are embraced by the majority of society or the majority of the segment of society they relate to the most. But most of all, people buy into empty words because it's what they want to hear. It suits them. They are the ideas that fit the lifestyle they want to live. They want to hear and believe that they can live how they want to live and there will be no consequence in this life or the next. Paul spoke these words to a young pastor named Timothy as he encouraged him to preach the word boldly. You can find this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time is coming. Listen to this. If this time has not come, I mean, I don't know what. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. What does that mean? Sound te- truth. People don't want to hear the truth. They will, they, they will have no appetite for the truth. But having itching ears, they will accumulate, they will, navig- they will gravitate toward other kinds of people, teachers and individuals to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth And they will wander off into myths, you know, fabrications, man-made opinions and stories, fairy tales. Again, I think we need to remember that many who call themselves Christians, Christian authors, Christian artists, Christian pastors, Christian teachers, Christian whatever, are speaking empty words in 2020. Don't buy into it. They teach and write books telling us that it's okay to practice homosexuality, that a little sex before marriage is not so bad. That everyone is curious and uses porn once in a while. That if your marriage isn't working great, you know, it's okay to exchange your spouse for someone you like better. Fantasizing about having sex with someone who isn't your spouse is natural. I mean, these are the crazy things that you'll hear so-called Christians say with great boldness and using scripture, distorting and twisting the word of God to justify some of their statements. Paul exposes this in his letter to the Corinthians saying, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Now the next sentence 
in this passage in Ephesians that I want to look at. And if you, if you think this message is heavy now, it's going to get heavier. All right? We're, this last third of the message or whatever it is, is is going to get heavier. So don't get weary with me. All right? Don't, don't start tuning out. Don't start checking social media. Now's not time to, to start thinking about lunch. Keep your focus on the Word of God right now. This stuff is important. So he says this, because of these things referring to sexual sins, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Why is Paul even saying these things to Christians? These ideas have implications, right, for the person who isn't yet a Christian. Wow, they need to think about the wrath of God, right? Or the the, the sort of pseudo-saint who thinks he's a Christian but really isn't, has never been regenerated, never been born again. Um, These... Ideas, wow, this is like a, a message for them, right? But actually, it's not. This isn't an, an evangelistic message at all. He's addressing Christians, born of the Spirit, beloved children of light, redeemed Christians, God's own people. That's who he's speaking to. And I want to make it clear that he's not saying to them, hey, you better ratchet up your morals or you ain't going to heaven. That is not the message of these verses at all. This would go against all of Paul's teaching in the New Testament. He never tells us to strive to be good so that we can maybe somehow earn a place in heaven. Rather, since we've been adopted, since we've been born of the Spirit, since God has put his Spirit in us and made us new, made us children of light, live it out. Be good. Virtue, in fact, And obedience is the evidence that we are truly born again. And I remind you, the words of Jesus, unless you're born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, I've heard people say, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm not one of those born again Christians. Look, that's the only kind of Christian that is going to heaven. Okay, I don't care whatever denominations and different language. I mean, for, according to the word of God, Jesus himself in John chapter 3 said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God and you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you better be born again, okay? Amen. And if you are born again, then just say it. Who cares what people think about it? Well, I don't want to be telling people I'm born again. Because why? Well, they might make fun of me. Okay, well, that's another sermon. <laughs> another sermon, another day. Let's stick to the notes. <laughs> what I believe Paul is aiming to do here in speaking these verses to, to Christians is to impart impart into us the fear of the Lord. 
He wants us to understand the seriousness and the sinfulness of sin by reminding us that the sins being committed every day by people all around us are things that will ultimately separate them from God on the day of judgment. Paul is not just appealing to consequences of sin in this present life, you know, because sin has consequences, right? You know, it can, it can destroy your marriage. It can bring you into a, all kinds of addiction. It can bring you into depression and sorrow and misery, and it can cause you to lose your job. It has all kinds of implications for this present life, but he's looking at something much greater. He's appealing to a much bigger thing, namely the wrath of God. He says, because of these things, these sins, these sexual sins, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These sins, Paul lists, that are redefined and denied and downplayed and celebrated in culture will one day be met with the full fury of the wrath of Almighty God. Paul wants us to understand this so that it changes the way we think about sin and relate to sin. I'm just going to give you a sampling of a few verses on the wrath of God. One is from 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to read these pretty fast. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fires. This is talking about a coming, a coming moment, a, a future moment that will happen when Christ returns. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Isaiah 2, verses 10 and 11, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man, so proud, so proud of his enlightened opinions. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. And the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. Mark it down. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then one more, Revelation chapter 20. And when I read this, listen, don't worry about understanding each phrase and each word. Definitely research this, study it, go deep into it. I'm not going to preach on this portion right now. I'm just going to read it. But just, I just want you to drink in the emotion of it. Use your sanctified imagination and picture the scene. This is all the sinners of all the ages standing before the glory of of the eternal judge. Then I saw a great white throne in him, speaking of God, who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then 
another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in a death, and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It is good for us to read Revelation 20 on a regular basis and to live in light of that. So many more passages could be looked at. All through Scripture, God speaks of this future moment of reckoning, this day of judgment for sinners. It is the end of the harvest that Jesus spoke about often when he said he will separate the the wheat from the chaff, the, 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 the righteous from the unrighteous in this kind of uh, day of divine court. All the sins, think about it, all the sins, outward sins, inward sins, the hidden things, the motives of a man will be laid bare before a holy God. The books will be opened and sinners will be convicted and sentenced. They will be as tiny specks of clay before the glory of his majesty. They will be without excuse. Even the most persuasive men will have no argument to justify their persistent, stubborn rebellion. They will be totally exposed on that day. I believe sinners will remember the voice of God the callings of their conscience, the heavens that declared to them the glory of God every day. They will remember every sermon they heard and every Christian who loved them, every invitation to come to Jesus. They will remember every poke and prodding of the Spirit since childhood to turn to God. But the harvest at this point has ended and they are not saved. They chose to live in darkness instead of light. They rejected the Savior who paid the price for sin for those who would believe. Now they will, instead of letting Jesus pay the price for sin on the cross, now they will pay for their own sins. Pride led them to this. They refused to live by God's laws. They insisted on being their own God and doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. We're not going to put this next portion of Scripture up on the screen, but it's been on my heart all week long as I've been meditating and contemplating on these things. I just want you to take this in. Don't even try to follow along in your Bible. I'm reading from the ESV version but just, I just want you to listen to Romans chapter 1 and what it says. It's literally a commentary on humanity. It's what God says about this planet. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He's speaking of all human beings. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God in their hearts, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, you know, enlightened, right? Claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What a perfect commentary of America. I have a few more thoughts, so stay with me. Jesus often described this day of judgment by saying there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What I believe this means is a kind of a fusion of anguish and rage. Once sinners realize that Jesus Christ is the eternal God and the only God, and that they are without excuse before him, they will manifest unthinkable rage. It is possible that they will blaspheme and curse God. People who we thought were so nice, nice sinners, will show their true colors and scream obscenities at the Almighty. We see a foretaste of this in Revelation as wrath is beginning to break out. Revelation 16, 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat from God, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent 
and give him glory. Their rage will be mixed with anguish. Their weeping won't be tears of regret, remorse, or repentance. They'll be weeping in the grossest kind of self-pity sinfulness. They will be weeping not for how their sins have vexed God, but for themselves over the consequences they must face. It's possible, too, that the weeping could refer to the tears of God's people. We're not sure from Scripture if the redeemed will be present at this judgment talked about in Revelation 20. Some say we will. We will be witnesses of what is happening. But I think that if we are there, we will know that the judge of all the earth is doing the right thing and this justice is good, but also our affection for some sinners who may have been family members or friends will cause us weeping. We will be weeping over the tragedy because that's what it is. It's a tragedy that someone would waste not only their lives, but their eternity. There will be weeping over the tragedy of people we know and love who missed the very purpose of their existence, which is to know and love and enjoy and glorify God forever. In the next chapter, Revelation 22, or 21 rather, It says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, speaking of his redeemed people. And this last verse just says, do do not become partners with, with them. Do not become partners with sin. For at one time you did that, at one time you lived in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord, you're children of light. Walk as children of light. The obvious application to these great and awesome eternal realities of judgment for sin is that we would have nothing to do with sin. That we would view sin, all sin, as damnable. I mean, these are the things that incur the wrath of the Creator. You know, it all seems in society, right? So it's just so normal and so acceptable. But the day will come when sinners will be punished for sin. All of it. Immorality. Pornography. Lying. Stealing. Cheating. Hating. Homosexuality. Orgies. Lusting. Malice. Substance abuse. Witchcraft, pride, idolatry, the idolatry of fabricating your own religion and your own idea of God and trusting in that instead of the one true God. All the hidden things will be laid bare and the full wrath of God against all of this will be manifested. Paul's reminding of reminding us of this to appeal to us to think about sin the right way. Fear God, hate sin, don't play with it, don't flirt with it, don't ponder sin, don't get near it, don't justify it, don't try it. 
Don't downplay it. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words that redefine sin. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes. We have no part in these things anymore. We are done with that. We are new. We are righteous. We are children of light. So understand the seriousness and the sinfulness of sin. And my prayer is that that we would view sin now the way we will view it then. When we stand before God, there shouldn't be a difference. There is a difference. But we're striving for there to be no difference. Have nothing to do with sin. We're going to do another song of worship and then uh, close, close our gathering out in prayer. Listen, I don't even know how to spring up from this, right? I told you it's heavy. You think it's heavy to listen to this concept for 45 minutes? I've been thinking about it all week long, <laughs> okay, as a minister. You know, this is what we, we have to steep in these things before we preach. But I pray that it doesn't just stay on you for 45 minutes or that it just doesn't linger for the next couple hours. I pray that you would, you would let these great and awesome truths really be stamped, like Jonathan Edwards said, onto your eyelids, that you would just see them and think about them and let them break you. Let them drive you to the fear of the Lord. Let them drive you to prayer for people you know and love who are lost? That's a whole other sermon. Let these great realities sharpen and refine the way you communicate the gospel. Don't be giving people a fluffy, half-hearted gospel that has nothing to do with sin or judgment or hell. That in itself is a false gospel and damnable. Tell people the truth. Jesus, I don't even know how to transition here, Lord. I just feel, feel a bit overwhelmed by, by these great and awesome ideas. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to hate sin. We want to think like you think. We want to be faithful to the word of God. We want to not buy into the empty words of preachers and teachers and authors who are not preaching the truth. Lord, we pray for courage. We pray for our own hearts, Lord, that we would not Let our hearts be deceived. Jesus, keep us, protect us, Lord. Keep us in the truth. Even if it feels so different from the culture, even if people laugh at us, even if people mock us, even if people hurt us, even if we come to a day where the church is persecuted, Lord, help us to stand firm in the truth and to not please men but to please God. Lord, we need your courage and your grace to do that. Let's stand together and worship.